Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks to Fred Wary about the internationalization of the conflict in Libya. Then, John, Will, and I compare and contrast the conflicts in Syria and Libya. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Fred Wary is a senior fellow in the Middle East program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was a senior policy analyst that ran for seven years. Before joining Carnegie, he served for 21 years in the Air Force, uh, both in active and reserve duty. He is the author of Burning Shores, Inside the Battle for the New Libya. Fred, welcome to Babel. It's great to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. What I want to talk to you about is the internationalization of Libya. It seems to me that Libya is sort of an unlikely conflict to be internationalized. There aren't a lot of people. Why are so many countries engaged? And when did they get engaged? It's been a, a gradual process, I think, over the past near decade, over, ever since the overthrow of, of Muammar Gaddafi in, in 2011. And of course, I mean, you, when you look at the, the rivalries, you know, many of these, these foreign rivalries were present during the 2011 revolution. They, they sort of fell back on the back burner, and then they, they really rose to the fore in, in 2014. I think Libya is really a casualty of broader global disorder, you know, tensions between uh, the Russians, between the United States. There's a number of reasons why countries are intervening related to ideology, to economic interest. Um, this is the African country with the largest oil reserves. So, so I think there's, a, there's multiple overlapping factors at, at work. And I think it's this notion that Libya is, you know, on sort of on the, the seams. I mean, it's, it's not important or not central enough in the Middle East region where it warrants huge U.S. focus. I mean, it's not at the center of the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Saudi-Iranian rivalry, but it is important enough because it has these oil reserves that, that there are states wrangling over it, you know. So, so, and then, of course, I think it's also a test case of the post-Arab Spring struggle for the role of Islamists. And then that was the major factor why the Emirates intervened. So give me a program. Who are all the foreign players in Libya now that matter? It's incredibly um, complex. I mean, the, the main players are the United Arab Emirates, Russia, France, Jordan, backing the forces of General Khalifa Heftar, who... In Along April, with the Egyptians, no? And the Egyptians, very good point. Of course, General Heftar launched the war last April on the internationally recognized government um, in Tripoli, the government of national court. The government of national court in Tripoli has enjoyed support from Turkey, most significantly in January of this year when the Turks brought in Syrian mercenaries. These were the same Syrian proxy fighters that Turkey has backed in the Syrian civil war. It, it moved them over into Libya. The Turks have sent drones, advisors, very technical type intervention. So those are the main players. I mean, you've got a number of, of other players that are conducting interventions, enabling. By one count, there have been seven different countries conducting their own airstrikes in Libya since, I think, 2012. So it's, it's a very crowded marketplace, but those are the main players. And how are they fighting? This is another, 
I think very fascinating aspect of, of Libya is the nature of combat. I mean, you have to remember that for much of the past seven years, it was a very rudimentary form of combat, militias. You know, I've, I've been to the front lines. I mean, the, you know, there's, there's sort of static artillery duels. It's not a very advanced form of combat. So the actual military forces, Libyan forces are very weak. So what that does is it gives an opening for foreign forces to come in with even a modicum of advanced, you know, weaponry. Um, and you have seen an injection of very deadly weapons coming in, um, anti-tank weapons coming in from the Russians, but most significantly are drones. This is the largest ever combat deployment of drones. The Emirates are flying their own drones. The Turks are flying drones. And what's important about this is that you know, these are not Libyans that are operating these drones. We typically, when we define proxy war, we talk about local forces that are being backed by outside actors. But in this case, the foreign actors have cut out the Libyans. I mean, there are Emirati pilots flying these drones. The Turks are flying these drones. And, and I think so the drones have been a huge part of this intervention. And I've heard more and more about mercenary fighters in Libya. That's, that's another dimension of this. And again, the draw of Libya's financial wealth. I mean, these mercenaries are, are getting paid. In some cases, I mean, the Libyan actors, the Libyan factions are paying them. In other cases, it may be foreign uh, actors like the, the Emirates, but the mercenaries are there. Most significantly, the Wagner group, the Rus famous Russian mercenary group that has intervened um, in Ukraine, in Africa, intervened in November, or rather September of last year, and I was on the front lines, and that was a huge shift in the momentum. It, it really aided Heftar's forces, and for the first time, you had the possibility that Heftar could possibly take Tripoli, and that spurred a counter-reaction from the government of a national accord who turned to Turkey and said, help us, and what the Turks did is they brought in thousands of Syrian mercenaries in late December January, and I was able to interview them, and they've been a very potent force, you know, on, on the front lines. Add, added to the mix, you've got Sudanese mercenaries, you've got Chadians, so again, a very crowded, crowded marketplace. Is this a harbinger of the future of Middle East conflict, where you just have outside parties looking to get the spoils of oil wealth, playing different sides, paying different parties, mercenaries coming in, collapse of the state. I mean, could this happen elsewhere? Or is there something particular about the weakness of Libya that allows all of these forces to, to cannibalize it? I've been wrestling with this. I, I do think it is, in some sense, a, a foreshadowing of, of war. And it's the, it represents war in the Middle East. It represents the convergence of a number of geopolitical and technological shifts. I mean, the availability of these very cheap drones, the sort of disposable, deniable nature of mercenaries, gray zone actors that are going around from war to war fighting. I mean, this, the very cheap nature of these fighters, the Sudanese, the Wagner. And I think you're, you're seeing, you know, Libya's sovereignty being truncated. The Emirates are carving out a separate sphere in the east, you've got the Turks in the west. I mean, the, the Russians are also building up air bases and forces. So there's, there's something very alarming at work. I mean, of course, Libya is unique in the sense that it's, as I mentioned, it's somewhat on the periphery of Middle East concern. So it's almost like 
this has gone on precisely because great powers, the U.S., other have been disinterested. They've allowed it to go on. We saw similar dynamics at work in Yemen, and there was obviously more, you know, U.S. attention there. But again, similar strategies being played out in Yemen with the truncation of sovereignty, mercenaries, um, airstrikes, and and I think the middle powers of this region, the the Turks, the Emirates, the Saudis, they're, they're throwing their weight around. The U.S. is absent. One question for me is the, the impact of the post-pandemic economic fallout, you know, and also the, the decline in oil prices and their ability and willingness to, to have these sorts of adventures in the, in the region. But that's a different topic. Are you seeing any of that yet? I mean, you've been going Not- back and forth to Libya for a while. A lot of Libya watchers are watching that. We've, we've not seen that yet. I mean, we thought maybe the COVID pandemic would force these warring parties to dial back, you know, either out of financial considerations or the concerns of the health of their combatants. But you're not seeing that. You've seen an uptick of shipments. So any economic fallout, there's probably going to be a great time lag. You know, you've, I mean, you just had the deployment of Russian fighter aircraft coming in. The big fissure to watch now is there's a, there's a division between the backers of Heftar. Heftar over his future, over, over the next steps, because Heftar suffered some serious battlefield losses at the hands of the Turkish-backed GNA forces over the last week, and he's, he's on his heels. And his foreign backers are, are recalibrating and they're deciding, you know, do we really want to back these guys? And what you have now is the Russians and the Egyptians are backing the HOR, the House of Representatives in the East, who's launched a sort of peace plan and with the GNA, with Government of National Accord. But meanwhile, I mean, the big unknown is the Emirates and they still seem to be committed to Heftar. Um, so this is something to really, really watch. One of the things that one of the negotiators told me at one point was his concern was Hafter wasn't strong enough to be a good strongman. That's accurate. Yeah. I mean, we've known for a long time that his backers, especially the Russians and and the Egyptians, have long soured on him, his military competence, um, his and ambitions, you know, so, so they've really propped him up with a lot of weaponry and funding. And, but you're absolutely right. And, and the Egyptians, especially, I think we haven't talked too much about them, but they're, they have, I mean, legitimate concerns about their border. They looked at, they're looking for some pliable ally in the East that will secure their border, but they were always leery about Heftar launching this military expedition in Tripoli to topple the recognized government there. You have been going back and forth to Libya for quite some time. You've been watching this conflict unfold. What's the piece of it that you feel people don't understand? I mean, as you point out, this isn't a high-profile conflict. But you know a lot of people in Libya. You've tracked a lot of people in Libya. What, what's the piece that's not understood that needs to be appreciated? I think it's often the misunderstanding of the motives of the players and this very lazy labeling of, especially, I think, of Islamists and non-Islamists. And this is, unfortunately, part of the narrative that's touted, especially by Heftar's backers, that the government of National Accord is, is filled with Islamists and that this is a campaign against radicals and Heftar represents some secular vision, which is completely not borne out by the realities on the ground. Uh, so, so I think that's one careless labeling that we see in, in the media, but also among certain 
policymakers. And so when you, when you get down on the ground, you just realize how incredibly complex it is. You're, you're talking about a complex tapestry of different political factions. I mean, especially towns, town-based militias under this sort of broad regional umbrella. But that's another thing I think people don't understand is that it, this notion that it's a struggle between East and West. There is a division between East and West, but we have to remember that a lot of Heftar's forces in this battle are coming from the Western region from a town called Tarhuna. So again, again, the bottom line is just avoid easily labeling, look to the convergence of, of economic and political factors, avoid, you know, reading this too much through an ideological lens of, you know, Islamists or anti-Islamists. I think the anti-Islamist dimension certainly motivated the Emirates from 2014 to about 2017. But around 2017, the Islamists in Libya really fell by the wayside. They were exiled, they were killed, imprisoned, in some cases from within their own communities. And now the rationale for especially Emirati intervention, I think just, it's not purely about, you know, anti-Islamism anymore. As a sort of final wrap up, it was interesting that that to me, the piece you said isn't well understood is largely domestic peace. And that implies that what is understood is, is the international aspect, the, the extent you have all these proxy forces, the war. And yet we've had very little effective mediation. The UN has been trying. Hassan Salama just resigned after several years of trying. Right. If we fundamentally understand the international piece of this, why is it so hard to just bring countries together and resolve the international dimensions as conflict? I've been grappling with that. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the, everybody knows what's going on. I mean, the, the UN has been issuing these panel of experts reports every year where they, they tabulate the arms embargo violations. So this has been going on in broad daylight for a number of years. And again, I think it goes back you know, to my understanding is Libya is a casualty of this broader global disorder, multipolarity, the, you know, you compare the consensus at the Security Council in 2011 with what's happening now, you know, and you mentioned UN efforts to affect a ceasefire. The U.S. vetoed those efforts. It was on the side of Russia and France. And so and the bottom line is, I think, when I talk to U.S. policymakers about why they're not engaged, it's the notion that there are other regional equities at play. So yes, Libya is bad. However, the U.S. cares about other regional files, Iran, Israel-Palestine, these other areas, and the interveners in Libya are part of those interests. And so the U.S. is reluctant to push too hard So there's a trade-off. And so it's almost, again, like Libya is a victim of the fact that there are other, you know, regional uh, pressures and interests at play. The Europeans, of course, have been trying to enforce an embargo, but the Europeans are divided. Again, the French have been some of the most stalwart backers of, of Heftar. The Italians have their own interests. So again, I think it just comes down to other priorities, global disorder, disinterest. You have to attribute much of it to the U.S. reticence after the 2011 revolution where Obama consciously said, we're not going to own this post-occupation, right, or post-conflict reconstruction. We're going to hand it off to the U.N., to the Europeans. And I think that did create 
somewhat of a precedent and a vacuum for other powers to come in. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Next up, John, Will, and I discuss the similarities and differences between the conflicts in Syria and Libya. What similarities do either of you see between the conflicts in Syria and Libya? It feels to me that you have the same degree of internal fighting being bolstered by external support. You still have jihadis fighting. You have a sort of ineffective international presence trying to to resolve the issue. And the fact is, people seem not to be done fighting yet. I would say maybe another similarity is Russia's role in this and the overlay of the role of the US and the opportunism of Russia. I think in both cases, the United States didn't act decisively at any point, and Russia took advantage of this. And Russia has already established uh, a base on the Mediterranean in Syria, and perhaps is is trying to establish military bases in the southern Mediterranean as well through this intervention in Libya. And just to pick up on that, you know, we're, we're preparing a, a mini-series on Russia in the Middle East, and one of the things that comes through as a clear theme is how opportunistic Russia is. Russia was very opportunistic when it saw an opening in Syria with a relatively low investment. The United States had very comprehensive goals, which it was unable to achieve and, and can't really figure out what it's trying to do instead. In Libya, the US said, we're not gonna do anything comprehensive. We're not going to be ambitious. Again, Russia opportunistically saw an effort for a small investment and it saw a weak environment and said, you know, with a little bit, we can have a lot of impact. And without trying to shape the broader outcome, it just tried to advance its interests. And again, with limited goals and limited resources, it's able to have a real impact. To backtrack for a second, one of the first things you mentioned, John, between Syria and Libya was internal fighting bolstered by external support. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, certainly one of the things that I thought surprised me in in my conversation with Fred was how much of this battle is being carried on by foreign drones, often with foreign pilots. There seemed to be a lot of vultures circling around Syria trying to get access to Libya's oil wealth. The Libyans are, are, are foot soldiers, but they don't really seem to be directing the fighting. I think that's a little bit different in Syria, where you have a central government that was completely on the ropes in about 2015 which was saved by the Russians, and the Russians provided all the air support, and the Syrian troops moved in, there clearly would have been a different outcome in Syria had Russia not intervened. It seems to me that in Libya, if external parties weren't financing this all, the combatants on the ground would reach some accommodation. As long as people are willing to finance more fighting, Uh, People out of desperation continue to line up one side, the other, sometimes switching sides just to survive. Again, to backtrack a little bit, John, you also mentioned jihadis and mercenaries in both Syria and Libya. Can you explain that as well? The Islamic State, when it set this up as a battle against the Assad regime, drew people from all over the world. And I don't think a lot of people went to fight. And I don't think a lot of Syrians fought for money. Syrians fought either because they opposed the regime or because you have these these international jihadis who come in and are trying to create an Islamic state. Libya has had 
many fewer foreign fighters, although you've seen some mercenaries coming in from Syria and other places, but you don't have the ideological layer to the fighting. It's just about money and control, and in many cases about survival. And finally, you also mentioned an ineffective international presence that's trying to resolve the issue in both countries. Can you explain what that means and what the UN's role is in both Syria and Libya? The UN has been trying to create solutions to the conflicts in both Syria and Libya. It's not been successful. We have an arms embargo in Libya that, that hasn't been honored. It seems to me that part of a successful UN mediation effort, whether it's in Syria or Libya or Yemen or anywhere else, depends on people looking for the door and trying to resolve the conflict. It feels to me like nobody's quite there in Syria, although we're close. I think we're farther away in Libya. We currently have an acting UN envoy in Libya, but it's, it's unclear when we're going to get to the point where people decide enough is enough and we have to resolve this. Instead, it feels like we're at the point where people are still thinking, if we do a little bit more, we'll get a lot more. And that pushes people to fight more. And, and when so much of this is being fought by external parties from the air, the external parties don't feel the hurt at all. And it's relatively little money, and they can just continue this fight on and on and on. That feels like the dynamic that's unfolding in Libya. I think that's a, a really important point. And I think looking at the levels of violence in the different countries and the military component of these conflicts is, is important as well. I think it's probably fair to say that from the beginning of the Syrian conflict, there has, broadly speaking, been an idea that at least one party has believed that it can win the conflict militarily. And I think until 2015, that was probably the momentum seemed to be on the side of the opposition. And then since then, the momentum has been on the side of the regime. But in Libya, we're talking about, firstly, a, a hugely vast area. Libya is 10 times the size of, of Syria. It has a tiny, tiny population in comparison. It's pre-conflict population was um, in Libya was 7 million, whereas in Syria, it was more than three times that. So the population is not densely populated in the same way it is in Syria. So I think probably there are a lot of people in Libya who aren't directly impacted by the fighting in the same kind of way. And there has broadly speaking been a sense that neither of the main political factions have been able to win a military victory. That has shifted a little bit with Heftar when it seemed like Heftar might be able to take Tripoli, but we've seen now that that's not possible. So there is this real stalemate. And I think that's a, a key difference between the conflicts. Are there any other differences that you want to talk about before we wrap up? I suppose one difference I think is the personalization of the conflict. I think in Libya, Really, from the start, we've been talking a lot about Khalifa Heftar. We've been talking about Fayez Saraj. Those two figures, I think, have been really key throughout the conflict. In Syria, clearly on one side, there's Bashar al-Assad. But the conflict on, on the opposition side, it was never personalized to the same degree. And, and a single figure never really emerged as the main leader of the opposition. And so I think in some ways, that's another key difference, because in the mind of, of many international actors, there's always been one opposition figure that with which they could deal, which, again, Heftar. And, and I think that that has, has made things play out quite differently. In some ways, it's easier to think about a change 
when you can envision more clearly what the alternative is. And, and you can like or dislike Khalifa Haftar, but at least it's a person. And in Syria, there never really was that alternative to Bashar al-Assad. And certainly one of the things that Assad tried to do was he tried to define the opposition, not as Democrats, but as jihadis. Uh, I think he tried to push Syrians toward either aligning with him or, or aligning with the jihadis. And they tried to define this as a battle to defend Syria from jihadis. Haftar's tried to do that some, but the fact is that Haftar has fighting with him a number of jihadi forces. The difference really is, as Will says, it's, it's a personal difference. I think my final question is, why is it a useful exercise to compare and contrast the two conflicts? I think it's interesting to see how Russia is behaving in the Middle East, how Russia is opportunistic, what the limits are in one place, what experiments it's done in Syria that, that help define what it does in Libya. I think it's useful to think about Turkey's regional strategy. There was a, a time right after the Arab uprisings in 2011 when Turkey was very active in the region. Then people said, well, Turkey's given up on the Middle East because nobody wanted them there. And, and they've been very effective with a relatively small footprint in Libya. To me, it's about these actors seeing the United States playing a much lesser role and trying to define how they deal with each other and how they deal with the region when they have opportunities. Certainly different environments on the ground, different stakes, but each side has relatively limited tools and they are trying to use what they have learned in Syria, not only to help shape what they do in Libya, but I think also it will help shape other things that both Russia and Turkey do in other places in the Middle East. So it ends up being a pretty good indicator of where conflicts in the region may be going once they start erupting. Absolutely. And I think that picture should worry us all um, if Libya is a model for future conflicts. That's uh, a daunting prospect. And we haven't even seen all the regional powers get involved in Libya. It, there could be more and it, it could be quite a dark, dark prospect for the region, as Will points out. Thank you both for joining us. Tune in next week for a new Meze, Fodder for Debate. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.